welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tehswetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmakulu. And today's text, I Know What You Did Last Summer, is set in Southport, North Carolina, the traditional home of the Lumbee peoples. And, Joe, we have a guest today. We do indeed, yes. We are joined by author and academic Jess Battis. Hi, Jess. Hello. How you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk about this book-film combo. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I think you prepared a land acknowledgement for us, so can you tell us where you're coming from? Yeah, I'm uh, currently in Chilliwack, British Columbia, so that's unceded Coast Salish territory, traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, as well as the Stalo people. That means that Jess is just two and a half hours down the highway from me right now. Yeah. But as I was reading in the paper today... It's October 1st here on the day we're recording. It's winter tire season. So I can't come see you, Jess, because no. I don't have appropriate tires. <laughs> yes, no tires. It's a real real drama. It's a real drama to deal with. <laughs> that is a deep gut for Canadians. And everybody else is like, I don't know what you folks are talking about. I think it might even just be a deep cut for like BC because I didn't I don't ever remember this being the law anywhere else I lived, but there was all this signage like you can't go on the Coquihalla with your mud and snows. So, okay. It's very exciting times. While I'm doing deep cuts, can I share another important piece of news that I think our listeners will be interested in? Absolutely. <laughs> My son, who is four, just brought home his first ever Scholastic Book Fair flyer. Oh, <gasps> yes. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I wow. thought of you immediately, Joe, because it's the Halloween one and there is a whole section Ooh. of goosebumps. There's a yes. whole section of goosebumps. <laughs> Scholastic have really upped their game in the past decade, like in terms of diversity and storytelling. Yes! It's, a, it's a really different world than when I was getting that catalog, you know? Nice. I really noticed. And I also noticed, and this, I wouldn't have liked this as a kid. My parents never bought the junky toys, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. in the Scholastic book catalog, you could sometimes like scam in some kind of mm -hmm. like sticker book or yeah. like figurine. They're not doing that anymore. None of that stuff oh. in there. It's it's all oh. books, but it's got this beautiful uh, whole section in the center on diverse reads. But more importantly, there's diverse reads scattered throughout. Anyway, mm. <laughs> sneaky. My husband was like, how much money are you going to spend? And I was like, I don't know. I'm so <laughs> excited. <lot>. So much. <laughs> That's when you need a budget. Totally. No, I'm going to have to set myself a Scholastic Book Fair budget. Uh, <laughs> anyway, just a little That's nostalgia funny. for our listeners. I love it. Oh, I miss those days. Mm-hmm. Anyway, speaking of nostalgia. Yeah, <laughs> we are knee deep in the middle of October. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you've already broken the behind Sorry. the scenes. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> when this is coming out, we're knee deep in October. So yeah. I'm very surprised, Brenda, because you programmed this pick. I did. Okay, so the reason I, I programmed this pick. I know why Brenda programmed this, I feel. <laughs> do you? Why I do you think, think so. I programmed it? Because of Kevin Williamson. Oh my <gasps> gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an even more of an esoteric Brenda deep cut than that. Oh, it's okay. That 
I was um, listening to a true crime podcast and they were talking about the killer of Lois Duncan's child being arrested finally, like last month. And I didn't know any of this. And so I got really excited about the idea of someone who like kind of writes horror for teens, although it's not really, is it? It's like a thriller. Someone (laughs) who writes like suspenseful, violent literature for children and then has this whole like change of life because they're touched too closely by violence themselves anyway i became fascinated and i texted joe and this is how much of a dork i am i texted joe i was like did you know who lois duncan is and joe's like yeah thanks for coming out i know who lois duncan is <laughs> you mean staple of my teenage reading years <laughs> yeah. yes i know who knows <laughs> although i will say that reading reading her author questionnaire about seeing the film adaptation i knew that she was not fond of this adaptation but actually reading her responses i was like oh this makes me like you just a little bit less like i appreciate that she has gone through some really awful trauma and tragedy in her personal life but ma'am when your film is optioned into a film they will make changes and if we're talking about egregious changes from book to film this is not one of those cases this adaptation is actually pretty decent well, it's funny because um, I actually found that section very instructive because this is definitely a place, obviously, where I have some learning to do. But I was like, I really appreciated her defining the difference between thriller and horror for me because I don't think I've <laughs> ever thought enough about a giant basket of things labeled stuff that scares Brenna to recognize that there are like obviously clear distinctions. And it was interesting to, to kind of see her talking about writing a thriller mm-hmm. and seeing it turned into horror and how for her that was like a bridge too far. I found that pretty interesting. Which is very funny because for horror fans, and I'm speaking more for the film community, we bristle at the semantic difference because a lot of people will try to use it as a signifier to say, oh, well, I don't like horror movies, but I will watch this thriller. So I will watch Um... Silence of the Lambs, but it's not a horror film. It's a drama with scary parts in it. And you're just like, no, that's actually reinforcing the stigma that horror films are only one type of thing. So this is kind of like when people call comic books graphic novels because they don't want to say they read comic books? A little bit, yeah. Mm, Okay, well, I don't like that. So I retract (laughs) all of my previous comments. No, no, you're fine. Like, (laughs) I think it can be useful. I just, I welcome the discussion as opposed to the shutting down of like, oh, well, I like thrillers. I don't like horror. Mm, Okay, I got it. I got it. What about you, Jess? Horrors, thriller, do you distinguish between them? It's interesting from a fiction standpoint, and it reminds me of ways in which editors and agents will sometimes use a phrase like upmarket fiction to describe mm. what is what is genre fiction like horror fantasy science fiction absolutely but like just literary enough that the literary audience will be able to package it that way and so they won't necessarily mm. think about they don't then have to think about the nuances within those various genres they just think well you know I've, i'm reading a book with a very nondescript geometric cover on it so of course that's not it's not really horror it's <laughs> kind of like upmarket fiction book that I'm reading. It's so funny because I'm really thinking right now about the parallels with the discourse online around Sally Rooney, who clearly writes romance, but (laughs) isn't marketed or sold as romance, right? It's marketed Mm -hmm. and sold as lit fic. This is fascinating because I, well, it's ignorance on my part that I don't think of these distinctions in other genres. So that's fascinating. 
yeah, it, it comes up a lot when we try to define genre specifically, because in a way, Brenna, it is very similar to the conversations we've had about graphic novels and comics, but it's probably more useful to start categorizing them as categories or genre and subgenre, because it's so liminal and fluid and malleable, and it changes over time. Like, the way that Lois Duncan would approach this material from when she was writing the book back in 73 compared to when the film came out in 1998, it's a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 97, not 98. People will call me. <laughs> Um, I feel like we keep cutting Jess off. Jess, were you trying to say something? Oh, I was thinking, yeah, in terms of writing, it's really interesting to sort of see where your work gets categorized in bookstores, because I've seen Mm -hmm. things that I've written in horror, Mm. but I've also seen them in paranormal and then urban fantasy, occasionally just thrown into like the fiction section at a used bookstore. And as, right. as an author, I'm a, I'm a member of a thriller association, but I'm not a uh, member of a horror association. So I think when you, it's like when you get writers together, they will kind of talk about how these marketing categories work. But really, the texts tend to kind of cross genres in that regard. And I don't know mm-hmm. if I really, like if I'm teaching horror, we, we do spend a lot of time in class debating horror versus thriller, but we never actually arrive at a satisfactory definition of either. No, no, because I don't think one exists. I think half the fun is having the discussion and trying to get people's opinions about where things land. So um, I guess thriller, horror, slasher, we should probably just tell people what the book is about to start out with, right? Let's begin. Okay, so we have four main characters. We have Julie, Ray, Barry, and Helen. And Julie is like the sort of main character in that we meet her first and we kind of focalize everything through her and the end of the book um, is really kind of her her not dying is sort of key to, to the framing of the book. But one thing I like that Duncan does is we get to see this world from all four perspectives. Um, and I think that's really helpful in understanding the kind of double plot that's going on. So uh, Julie gets a note. It says, I know what you did last summer. And slowly we find out that after getting drunk on the beach, <laughs> the four friends were driving home and they run over a kid, like a 10 year old mm-hmm. kid. That surprised me. I didn't expect it to be a child. Yeah. And they make an anonymous call for an ambulance, but they don't stick around and the child dies. And so Julie is kind of racked with guilt and changes her whole life and goes from being like a cheerleader party girl to being a really focused student. Ray leaves, like he just bails on town and goes and like bums around California to come to terms with his guilt. Mm -hmm. But that's after Julie dumps him as well. Yes, because she doesn't want to... Well, she doesn't like... They have a whole thing of like, do we stay? Do we go? And Julie feels like Ray backed his best friend, Barry, instead of doing what was right. And so... Mm -hmm. And Julie is the one who feels the most guilt. Like, she sends a whole bunch of flowers to the funeral and stuff. Like, she's she's the one who's kind of most overt in her feelings of, of guilt and regret. Right. And... I don't even know where to start. There's all these subplots, and I know I'm going to get caught up in them, so I'm going to ignore the subplots, and you can come back and tell me which bits are important later. But basically, Helen gets a note tacked to her door. Ray gets a phone call. They're all being kind of stalked by this person who knows what they did. And along the same time, 
Helen meets a new boy named Kali, uh, who has moved into her apartment building. And Julie is dating a new boy named Bud, who is just back from the war in Iraq in this version, originally Mm -hmm. Vietnam. Yes, we should maybe acknowledge the fact that the book was written in 1973, but then it got updated in 2010. So... Oh, and we're going to talk about that because it's weird. (laughs) It is super weird. Yeah, it feels like a collage between outdated linguistics mixed with contemporary technology. And sometimes it just doesn't work. (laughs) But also like outdated gender politics. And like, the technology isn't consistent. So like, sometimes someone has a cell phone, but other times they need to get back to their like, home Mm -hmm. landline. It's very strange. Anyway, So then Barry gets shot, which is my favorite part of the book, but unfortunately, <laughs> oh. <laughs> unfortunately, he lives. And oh my gosh. I, I had to shut down a conversation between the two of you because you were so excited to talk about how terrible Barry is. I was like, folks, we are on a podcast. We have to save some of this content. Juicy the anti Barry content. <laughs> and he tells everyone that he got called out of the house or he lets people believe that he got called out of the house for a phone call with Helen. And then he later uh, lets people believe that he thought Helen was like dating somebody else. But really, he got a phone call saying that someone had a picture of the car hitting the kid. And so he like goes outside in the dark and he gets himself shot. Um, Gets himself shot. That is <laughs> such an interesting way of putting it, Brenna. Way to go, Barry. <laughs> He's terrible, and it's better when he's dead. Anyway. Um, <laughs> he only dies in the film, not the book. I know, I know. Wait, doesn't he die in the book? No, no he, he doesn't. walks. Oh, yeah, he gets better and everything. Yeah, no, I didn't like that part. Um, But in my head canon, <laughs> he dies. So, um, okay. <laughs> but ultimately, after the shooting, the pieces start to fall together, and what we realize is that Kali, who lives in Helen's apartment, and Bud, who is dating Julie, are actually the same guy, and he is the older brother of the little boy who they killed, and he wants his revenge, and his revenge is going to be to kill Julie and leave Ray without her, but luckily, Ray figures it out at the last minute, and the end, everybody gets away with it, (laughs) except for for, uh, Bud, who goes to jail. Well, not exactly, because there's the implication that Ray and Julie will tell the truth and that Barry and Helen have given their consent to finally come clean because they had made a pact that they would not say anything. And Julie was the naysayer kind of abstainer, which is why she ended up regretting it the most, I think. Well, and I do think there's kind of a deep irony in the structure of the book as a whole. And maybe it's maybe the moral is that um, teenagers make bad choices, but like... Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's 1973. The kid is biking at night with no reflectors or anything. And like, mm-hmm. yes, they've been, Barry's been drinking, but like the odds that they would have gotten, especially because if they had stayed and called the ambulance sooner, it's not guaranteed that the kid would have died. It's almost like the whole moral is like if they had just stuck around and dealt with the consequences at the time, maybe mm-hmm. the kid wouldn't be dead. There probably wouldn't have been much punishment. And for sure... Bud Colley wouldn't have had to murder a bunch of people. Try to. Not yes. successfully. He's not very good at killing people. They are way better at killing people than than the villain, actually, if you think about it. <laughs> That's the real one. <laughs> the true, saying, le- the true lesson. It. <laughs> it's 
Scholastic Book Fair. Come on, take take this book up. It's the true lesson in moral relativism. As you grow into teenagehood and you begin to drink, think about who you may murder on the highway. Your body is changing and you will be murdering people on the freeway at a certain point. Just saying if Bud's goal is to kill somebody, he's not very good at it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I think it because at the end of the day, Duncan is actually less interested in the thrilling aspects of the book and more interested in the moral ramifications. Like, how do people process what they have done? And how do you move on with your life? And in some cases, like Barry and Helen, it's not so difficult. And part of the the book's interest lies in revealing to them that they are not great people. And it's probably helpful to know that Lois Duncan, she was a writer of sensational teen fiction, so it's not Mm -hmm. surprising that it's kind of got this thrilling or violent element to it. But the original idea for the book was because her daughter was telling her this story about two girls who ended up having a crush on the same boy, but they didn't know it. And so that's the piece where she was like, what if this was the story? (laughs) Everything else comes around that. So if you know that the double identity twist is the piece that she's actually trying to get at, it actually makes a lot of the plot elements make more sense. Right. And also explains why she was so dissatisfied with the film, because one of her big criticisms is that she was excited by this double identity reveal. And of course, that doesn't really happen in the film. But also... Ms. Duncan, that is almost impossible to pull off on screen because the <laughs> exactly. minute that you see Kali and then the minute that you see Bud, you immediately know that they are one and the same person unless he is wearing some kind of ridiculous Mission Impossible style mask. Big sunglasses. He's wearing really big sunglasses. I was going to say, maybe you just re- you reshoot it in COVID times and everybody's got a mask and sunglasses on. This is true. He was wearing a completely different mask. How could I have possibly known? <laughs> Okay. So, what do you guys think of the book? As someone who teaches YA literature, and I read a lot of YA literature, as soon as I pick a novel up, I'm like, okay, how would I teach this? And how would my Mm. students respond to it? Mm. And the further I got into I Know What You Did Last Summer, because I hadn't actually read it. I, I loved the movie, but I hadn't read the novel. I just kept thinking, if I were a student in, in 2021 approaching this novel, it would give me a, a kind of a peculiar perspective on what teen literature was like in the 70s because mm-hmm. yeah when you compare it to you know work by judy bloom or even earlier work by se hinton like you're mm-hmm. not you're not getting as much psychological depth with the characters but at the same time i could really appreciate some of the subtle things that duncan was trying to do in the novel to add a bit of depth there's a a particular moment that really struck me when julie was talking to her mother and she looks at her mother's hands and realizes, oh, my mother is getting older. What, yeah. is that, what does that mean for me? And I thought, yeah, we've all had that moment. Mm-hmm. So she, she does manage sometimes to touch upon really like nuanced human experiences, but it's not a novel that's very focused on characterization. At the same time, though, once the plot really kicks in, I would say about you know, a third of the way in, it's, it's, it is a page turner for sure. And oh, I yeah. did, yeah, yeah. I did enjoy it. I, I wanted Barry to die 7,000 times, oh, God, yes, so <laughs> but at the same time, that's a testament to what Duncan is doing in terms of creating yeah. this, this like vile anti-feminist character and saying, you know, who is the real villain in this story? Maybe it's, maybe it's this guy. 
yes i was like what if <laughs> what if all of this turns around and it's just like it's actually just barry's been the villain the whole time and he kind of is the villain the whole time right like he's what motivates them not to stay he's mm-hmm. so cruel to helen his desire to not sort of tell the truth about like his relationships or any of that means that they don't recognize how violent this stalker is until much later than was necessary like barry mm-hmm. just makes such a series of selfish bad decisions that i just like ah actual villain equals barry there well i think as well there's a there's a particular narrative technique that duncan pulls off that i thought was really fascinating where we get we get helen's perspective where she's wondering, you know, why did Barry choose me to be his girlfriend? It must have been this kind of magical occurrence. He picked me up like a princess in a fairy tale. And then we get mm-hmm. Barry's perspective, and he's just like, yeah, I really liked how she looked from behind. So, <laughs> And then when I saw her from the front, she also had a nice rack. Yeah, yeah, she was also pleasing from the front. And it's just like, I think it's, <laughs> it's, her, it's, a really, it's a really fascinating way of giving a kind of cautionary tale, I thought, to, yeah. to young girl readers, like... Your boyfriend also has a POV, and it's not a good one. Yeah, and I, I that by the way is one of the sections where I was like, you modernized all the text, but you left in him saying that she's stacked. Yeah, yeah. Like, really? Could there be a more nineteen seventy three word? Like honestly. So I'm curious because you two had very, uh, <laughs> you two had very emotional reactions to Barry, and we hate him. I'm not going to pretend that he is a good character, but I do agree with you, Jess, that I think he's actually very explicitly written to be a bad boy. But I also can't help but feel like the two of you are being slightly ungenerous to the way that he was raised, because this book also has a lot of thoughts about the impact that our families and the way that we are raised influences who we become as people. And Barry's mother is absolutely terrible and i think oh sure blame the mother there we I are with the part of the conversation <laughs> where we blame the mom it's always the mom's fault that's what always i'm saying the mom. <sighs> but I mean, he has been wrong. so he has been so babied by his mother and overprotected that it to me feels like a condemnation on entitlement right because barry doesn't want to go to university he wants to go away backpacking with his friends and he's got money so he doesn't understand why he can't just do what he wants and then in the back of our minds we're thinking you also murdered a child last summer and you don't seem to think or care about it at all but i think it's a direct reflection of the way that he was raised yeah i mean i think it's pretty uh, it's pretty clear with all the characters right because I'm thinking of, you know, the absence of Julie's father and how she is able to empathize with David Gregg's family, primarily because she has also experienced loss, right? And there's this mm-hmm. really clear through line between those two relationships and those those two experiences of loss. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're right. I think Duncan is sort of clear about how parenting works. But then I'm fascinated by Helen's family dynamics, too, because, by the way, was not prepared for the wild fat phobia vis-a-vis Helen's sister. Like, it is the worst. (laughs) Elsa is bad because she is fat. And basically, Mm -hmm. there's like this description of her getting up off the bed. And Duncan might as well write, she fatted fatally as she fatted a fat fat. Like, it's, it's wild to me because every single physical description of Elsa 
is designed for us to equate her body mm-hmm. and her plainness with being a bad person, right? Absolutely. Like every yep. single description. And so, you know, with that family dynamic, we have Helen who it's almost a counterpoint to what you're saying about Barry because Helen can look to her mother and be like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing that. Right. And ultimately make a series of, as Elsa's not wrong to point out, relatively selfish choices given that mm-hmm. the family appears to have 900 children at home to take care of. Yep. In order to escape that life. But like, when you look at Helen's family unit, what are the options? Because you either stay dutifully and are loathed by the entire community, which is Elsa's experience, mm-hmm. or you you leave, but ultimately your selfishness becomes the thing that a stalker is going to use against you, right? So it's like, unless you're Julie, what are your options as a, as a young woman in this world? That they're pretty limited. Yeah, it definitely seems like there is a right way and a wrong way to succeed in the world of this book. And it's basically you need to be Julie and everybody (laughs) else has like, like they're either striving so hard to overcome the elements with which they were raised. So like you're trying to be Helen and get the heck out of there or you're Barry and you don't even understand how privileged your life is, or you're Ray and you're literally living in the shadow of your best friend because you are an academic. Like, you're Mm -hmm. scholastically adept, and as a result, you're not as good. Also, it's very challenging for me to picture Ray as a five foot nine person because I'm so (laughs) used to thinking of him as Freddie Prince Jr. And Barry in the film is the short one, so it's like it just does my head in trying to compare these two. (laughs) (laughs) um the fat phobia stuff was (gasps) really difficult to handle for me i've never seen a character's weight be used to reinforce their problematic portrayal so egregiously and i feel like it's a very much a, a byproduct of 1973 but it's peculiar to me Like, if this was written by a man, we would be burning this book. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why it somehow got the slip because it's written by a woman. Is that fair? I don't know. I don't know. I think that we read it now and we see it, but I'm not sure that if I had read this book when I was, say, I don't know, what, 13? Like, let's say I pick up this book in 1996. I'm not sure that I even make the connection between the obvious fat phobia of this world and the world and Elsa's character traits. Like, I I, I don't think this is the most egregious example I've, I've ever read of it. I think we see it everywhere. And so part of what I was sh- stunned by when I read it was, it was more like a reflective experience for me of like, how often have I read this kind of characterization and not noticed? And how has that shaped how I live in the world and how I experience myself and other people, right? Like that, for me, it it set me on a whole sort of reflexive spiral that I I didn't enjoy, Lois Duncan, thank you. I didn't want or need that. (laughs) Yeah, because... I mean, we'll talk about the movie in a couple of minutes, which obviously has red herring characters that you're meant to suspect could be behind the letter. And it feels like the book does that to a lesser extent, but you're very much meant to look at, okay, it could 
maybe be Kali. You know, after mm-hmm. a certain period, it becomes very obvious that it is him. Mm-hmm. Or it could be Bud. Shocker, they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. And the third suspect is Elsa. And the reason yeah. that she is selected as a potential assailant or uh, someone who is out to harm them is because she's fat and jealous. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird thing, right? Yeah, as you suggested, Brenna, it's uh, it's a little confronting. Well, there's a really fascinating conversation between Helen's parents where they're talking mm. about Elsa versus Helen and kind of what mm-hmm. the, the various things that they're going to have to deal with as they get older. And, and it, it almost felt to me as a kind of a plot device that Duncan had to give both of these siblings some type of issue to deal with so that they could grow kind of quote unquote and mm-hmm. Helen's is that you know she's a bit too self-centered and Elsa also it curiously is self-centered in a way but the sense is like well she's going to have to you know she's going to have to find someone to marry just like Helen is going to have to find someone to marry and so they're all Naturally. both daughters are going to be a kind of on their own difficult trajectory but I do agree that with Elsa like she really is constructed as a villain through her fatness and it makes it difficult as the reader to kind of enjoy Mm -hmm. some of the pleasing snark that she has Mm -hmm. uh, that to me as a reader I really live for like as soon as Elsa was introduced as a character I thought okay this is the POV I want more of because she's continually telling Helen how all of her decisions are garbage basically (laughs) And it's just reading all of the characters, you know, a char- like Julie walks in and Elsa is just like, oh, I'm unimpressed with you. And I just think, <laughs> yeah, I want to know more from this character. But then because of the just really appalling fat phobia that's attached to her, it becomes way more difficult as the reader to enjoy Elsa's Elsa's character. And I, I don't know, I, I wonder, especially because Duncan was updating the book, it's fascinating <laughs> to me that... She updated the the manuscript and at no point was like, hey, maybe I should tone it down on this. No, at no point did she, because she talks in interview about how she really enjoyed the process of revising yes. the novel and then allowed, allowed her to get to know these characters again. It's like, at no point did you think, hey, Elsa, maybe a bit much. Well, and that, that interview is so fascinating, right? Because... The revision really feels like someone did like a find and replace and just inserted like yeah. cellular telephone yeah, texting. A little bit. And there's like, she makes this big deal about she got rid of a pantsuit and changed it to a blouse and slacks. And I'm like, yeah. oh, yes, that modern outfit choice, the blouse and slacks. Yeah, the Christopher Pike fan <laughs> in me was living for that because I was like, oh, okay. So she moved it from the 70s to the 90s. Like, it's so good. was Helen wearing a yellow blouse and uh, teal pants? Because that is Christopher Pike territory, ma'am. Well, but then in the interview, the interviewer kind of gives her this like, I mean, they're all softball questions. It's an interview in the back of her own book. But like, mm-hmm. there's this very, like, gentle question that's just like, oh, were you, was it really important to you to, like, keep the spirit of the book the same, but just change a few of the references? And she's like, no, I took it as an opportunity to rewrite the whole thing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, you didn't. The one update that I was really curious about, there's a scene in which Barry's parents are kind of figuring out, what do we do with Barry if he ends up being paralyzed? And there's oh a lot of um, there's a lot of like ableism, really holy. unsettling ableism in the yes. sense that Barry is not sure, you know, how to proceed with his life as someone who is mm-hmm. paralyzed. 
But there's this fascinating conversation between his parents where it's his father, actually, who's very kind of sympathetic in this moment saying, you know, we're going to have to let Barry go so that he can grow into a fully functional adult. He can get a desk Mm -hmm. job. And then she's added at the end of this paragraph that, and, you know, he could have controls on his car so that he will be able to drive. That to me felt like a, a reasonable update that she was Mm -hmm. actually kind of, kind of thinking about it. But it's, we don't really return to that as an issue for Barry because instantly we find out he is able to walk again. We don't have, we don't have to worry about, Thank gosh, we dodged that bullet. Oh, wait, we didn't, but technically. (laughs) Well, and it's fascinating too, right? This book made me question a lot of things. As as many times when we read older YA, they do, Mm -hmm. right? Because all of a sudden you're confronted by your own assumptions and biases, and also you're confronted by the world that shaped you. Yes. But like, when Barry is fine, I was like... Oh man, he's not even going to get punished. And then I was like, mm-hmm. "Wait a minute, Brenna! Like <laughs> the very fact that this book is using like the threat of disability as a punishment—that's a trope that is terrible, like a damaging, ableist trope." But yeah, I bought into it. I bought into it for like ten pages, and I was like, "Okay." So I felt the exact same way, and yeah, you're now making me realize that I was thinking along a certain line. And if we remove the punishment aspect of it. It's more that I was interested to see what does a character like Barry have to do when his life becomes different than Mm. what he had initially anticipated. And I would have been really fascinated to have seen what a character like this would do. I mean, we get a, a taste of it because when he thinks that he is going to lose the ability to walk, that's when he basically shuts down and starts lying and putting his friends in danger. But... I guess I just would have appreciated not just giving this a quick fix because that Mm. is a really scarily ableist thing that people do, right? Oh, well, we're threatening you with something that a lot of people go through and they don't just miraculously get the use of their legs back. It's their new reality and they go on to continue living vital and important lives. I would have loved to have seen Barry negotiate that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Duncan's not interested in that, right? No, that's not what this book is. (laughs) I think like a lot of the the disability storyline, if we can call it that, it really gets folded into Barry's sense of masculinity and Mm -hmm. how he's going to how he's going to move forward if he doesn't, in his mind, if he doesn't get to be an athlete. It's like, hello, you know, wheelchair games existed in the 70s. Mm -hmm. This was a thing Mm -hmm. that was happening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's actually, it was actually a tremendous time for disability rights. But it's as you know, this is not something that Duncan is actually interested in. But it, what was really helpful for me in reading some of the interview material with Duncan is when she describes the four characters. She says, "I wanted a, a good girl and a bad girl, and a good oh. boy and a bad and a bad boy." Mm. So, so oh. Barry Barry's the bad boy, which right. Then you're able to kind of frame, especially his. He has a conversation with Ray in the hospital where you sort of see, okay, the bad boy is in the hospital now. The good boy has become the one who kind of has more power in this narrative. But there's a really interesting moment where Barry is kind of looking at Ray in this, like, I mean, I'm always looking for a queer reading. So there's, oh, a, sure. there's a sense in which Barry is looking at Ray and being like, yeah, he's really good looking now. Like, he's really, he's become a man. He has a kind of man's body. And, you know, what body do I have? How am I mm-hmm. comparing myself mm-hmm. to him? And there's this, it feels like Duncan is using the disability as a plot device to get us to think about how Barry's masculinity has, has shifted somewhat. 
Although he's really more in control than Ray in this moment because he's still got this secret that he hasn't revealed yes. to anyone. Ray is kind of like the clueless one in this conversation. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the the collection of information and how it gets withheld is a pretty vital component of both of these texts and I do find it fascinating how the book plays with that with its double identity reveal in a way that the film just kind of straight up says, actually, no, we're going to use a very traditional horror movie trope to say, let's do some research. Let's pull out yearbooks. Let's go and interview witnesses and so on. So I don't know. I liked how the film ended up updating a lot of those kinds of components. Mm. It did strike me, though, that a character... A character like Ray in the book actually gets to be a bit more nuanced, in particular the way that he's described as like the smaller boy, he's a struggling athlete, you know, more as you've talked about, he's more of a more of a scholar, he's kind of a disappointment to his father in a way, but he talks about how, well, my father still is very loving, but realizes that I was never going to be the athlete that he wanted trying to kind mm -hmm. of figure figure himself out whereas when we get to the film and the note that i have about freddie prince jr's performance <laughs> in the film is why does it look like freddie prince jr has a low-grade fever throughout this film <laughs> at all times and i speak as someone who had just an unrepentant crush on freddie prince jr in the 90s so i feel as though that that shift in the film is he gets kind of his complexity gets downgraded a bit mm -hmm. to this kind of annoying faux feminist writer whereas it's, the uh, yeah the ray in the novel i think actually has a lot more potential for growth as you were talking i was just thinking does ray actually have the most functional family in the novel because Possibly. right like julie's mom is i mean julie's mom first of all is the only one who seems to like know what is going on she <laughs> like, sees the future like can we talk about that at some point it's pretty important, right? But the book is so fixated on the loss of Julie's dad and the impact of that on her. And then we talked about Barry's parents who like, apparently Barry's long suffering father who finally realized he needs to parent his child, but it's the mom's fault or whatever. Anyway, fine. And Helen's parents. Like, we have all of these family units. And the most striking thing about Ray's parents is exactly what Jess just mentioned, this idea that like, Ray hasn't turned out to be the athlete his dad wanted but his dad still loves him and like uh, had they have a loving relationship and i think that's significant in the book i think that's really significant i gently disagree with that i don't think that his dad is particularly loving and that's part of the reason why ray leaves to go to california because i think his dad is perennially disappointed in the fact that he is not barry that's a really interesting interpretation i I think this gets kind of paired away in the film because we don't get to see it mm -hmm. in the, in the oh, book. The parents are wholly absent in the film. <laughs> yeah. I think by design, it's purposely done that way. In the novel, in the moment where they're deciding what to do after they've done this hit and run, there's a moment where Julie realizes that Ray is going to side with Barry. And she mm -hmm. looks at him and is kind of like, what are you doing? And and the way that Duncan describes it is that Ray just kind of whispers to her, he's my best friend. And yeah. mm -hmm. there's a weird moment for Ray where you kind of get the sense that, like, Barry is just absolutely unselfconscious about who he mm -hmm. is. But Ray seems to be trying to figure out his place as a kind of teenage boy. And mm -hmm. probably his father's, like, benign you know, but very real sense of disappointment with him. Mm. That that could be a, a huge factor in that. 
Oh, yeah. It's absolutely, it's bros before hoes. But I think also because there's a little bit of queer codedness in mm-hmm. the way that Ray, I don't think it's so much that Barry and Ray like each other sexually. I think it's that they idolize the components that they don't have in the other. Well, I have a whole headcanon with Ray and Barry where basically, like, Ray and Barry hooked up once when they were drunk. Um, and it didn't mean anything to Barry, but Ray's like, now I got to go to California and figure myself out. I got to grow a beard. And what does this beard mean? It's sexual longing. Yes. Well, because every time a character sees Ray when he's come back from California, Mm -hmm. they're like, allow us to gauge your body and all of its changes. And as well, how weird you look with a beard, because we've always pictured you as like this powerful twink in the background. And now mm-hmm. you have this beard. It's just, it's, Duncan is doing something with Ray. I think she's trying to create a kind of softer teen boy narrator. <laughs> like a soft butch? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's, the sense is that he's he's not a nerdy boy perspective, and he's not a football player perspective she's giving a kind of an in-between area Mm. and like obviously she's not going to construct a queer character this reading is kind of an ambitious reading but i like the idea that a teen boy could pick up this novel in the 70s and is going to find maybe a slightly unexpected character because Mm -hmm. it's like who like they're not going to want to identify with barry (laughs) <laughs> well, or they may dangerously so. Yep. But um, I'm, I'm, no, I'm interjecting no, because we're 45 minutes thing. in. I we just need to move to the film. One last thing, which is that I think that Ray is the best option of who to be within the gender politics of this world for exactly the reason that Jess is pointing out here. Because even Julie, who is the good girl, her mom is constantly obsessed with the fact that now she studies too much, right? Now she studies too much. Now she doesn't have enough fun. Now she's not really having a senior year. Oh, it's like the Goldilocks approach to parenting, like (laughs) too much studying, but not too much somewhere in the middle. But Ray's escape and return has allowed him to flourish into this whole person that, yeah, I think I think I pick up what Jess is putting down. That's all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've had a lot of conversations about parenting and the lack thereof. We've had conversations about gender politics. So let's talk about the hot, sweaty bodies of this 1997 film. Yeah. Kevin Williamson. So the boy and girl are making out, right? When they hear over the radio that this lunatic killer's escaped from an insane asylum. That's not the way it goes. The boy goes for help and the girl stays in the car and she hears this, like, scratching sound. No, he's been decapitated. No, he was gutted with a hook. We can't just leave him here. Oh, tell me, little Miss Prelaw, what's the charge for manslaughter? We make a pact. Right here and now we take the Sar grave. For the last year, four friends have kept a secret. Are you on drugs? No. Well, then what is wrong? I've had a rough year. But not all secrets stay buried. Somebody sent this to me. Oh, my God. Someone knows. I know what you did last summer. Ooh. What they thought would be a new beginning. Toast to us. Is becoming a dead end. Somebody tried to kill you last night. We have to go to the police. If you wanted me dead, he could have done it. And the mistake they made. It was an accident. There was no accident. It was murder. What if he's still alive? Hey! What are you doing here? Is coming back to haunt them. Oh, my God. He's after me, too. I got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. Ah! 
Julie gets a body in a trunk and you get a letter? That's balanced. She's waiting for us to unravel. <laughs> the wait is over. What are you waiting for, huh? What are you waiting for? Okay, so as Jess teased, yes, this was written by Kevin Williamson. This is in the immediate aftermath of his super massive hot streak after Scream becomes a sensation. So this is his next project. He's doing this at the same time as he's prepping for the launch of Dawson's Creek. So it would have actually aired earlier before the film came out, uh, which is why we get the funny reference to Dawson's Beach. (laughs) Yes. I didn't get that. No. (laughs) And Buffy the Vampire Slayer is happening almost at the same time. Yes, this is in between season one and season two, which is why Sarah Michelle Gellar's haircut has to go from really bad wig to super high fashion cut. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so this is directed by a British director named Jim Gillespie. He does not like horror films, which is why this film is curiously bloodless for the most part. The one major exception that people will reference is Max's death. That's the Johnny Galecki character. Oh, Johnny Galecki. I have such a soft spot for that dude. I don't know why. Oh, for sure. My note for Johnny Galecki is Johnny Galecki giving us young George Costanza. (laughs) Not wrong. Not wrong. (laughs) And also Larry Alexander in um, Pretty Woman. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we should note that his death scene is actually a studio mandated reshoot because they felt like the film was too bloodless and it didn't have enough action in the early parts. So Max was not supposed to originally die. Oh. Yeah, so of course we've got a who's who of teen stars at the time. This is basically when if you were on a WB television show or you had a famous parent, you were in a teen slasher film. So (laughs) Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prince Jr., Ryan Philippe, Bridget Wilson as Elsa. And I have thoughts about how we go from fat phobia in the book to basically supermodel gorgeous. I was going to say literal Miss Teen USA. Mm -hmm. Literal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, I love her and I miss her and I wish she would come back to acting, but that's another podcast story. And the final character of note is Anne Hesch as Missy. And she was a bit of a get because this was uh, a harder role for them to cast because they needed someone who could be both empathetic as well as a red herring. Mm. she's good actually she's really good in it she's really good yeah maybe we can start there just because i am a little bit fascinated at how so this is the Susie character from the book which is a switch to missy and of course the big change in the film is that they don't kill a small child they kill a teenager or what they think is a teenager the reality is is that they hit the person who is stalking and killing them did not actually kill him he was out murdering the brother of the Missy character uh, Mm -hmm. because he had inadvertently killed this man's daughter. So it's far more convoluted. You can see how some of the sense of responsibility and guilt and trauma has been zapped out of that Mm -hmm. because we've gone a more traditional route of having a costumed killer. But I would actually argue that the sense of grief and responsibility and family trauma is very present in the way that Julie and Helen have to interact with Missy. And I feel like there's a lot of dialogue that almost gets transplanted directly into the film in these interactions. There's a weird like Southern Gothic vibe that's going on with Oh yeah. Mrs. Yeah, yeah. Where, the moment where she's like, allow me to step into my taxidermy shed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found that very peculiar in the kind of staging 
her house is kind of almost a haunted house that the, oh, yeah. the two teen girls have to go into. Yeah, there's a, Anne Heche, I felt like as an actress, is she's kind of giving an energy that nobody else in the film is giving. Like she mm-hmm. under, yes. understands it to be a very particular kind of horror movie. Mm-hmm. And, and those scenes also pass the Bechdel test, which is nice. <laughs> well, and people know that I give Kevin Williamson a lot of credit. He's very important to me, to a lot of queer horror fans in particular. One of the things that I really appreciate about the way that the film modernizes and adapts the 73 text is that this movie is all about Julie and Helen, and Ray and Barry almost become secondary characters. Like, the friendship between the two girls really comes to the forefront, and I really directly attribute that to a queer screenwriter. Yeah, there is that a great moment in the film where Helen and Julie are in the car after mm. they've talked to Missy, and I think Julie says to Helen, like, what happened to our friendship? Yes. And the, the subtext is like, these these two idiot boys happened to our friendship. And also <laughs> mm-hmm. also the murder. The murder was probably hard. <laughs> But that's secondary, really. <laughs> but you get the it's. It was interesting seeing Sarah Michelle Gellar in that role because you know she's playing a very different character with Buffy, and mm-hmm. in this movie she has to be very much more subdued. But yes, the movie does a really good job, I think, especially with that very campy. What is the kind of regional Miss America contest that they're, they're ah, like the Croker Miss... Queen, <laughs> Croker Queen, Croker Queen? So like, yeah, that that campy kind of performance in the beginning i think williamson does a really good job of trying to get us to think about all of helen's insecurities as someone who's probably been told that her her value lies in her beauty mm-hmm. it's an interesting transition to a pageant too because like obviously a pageant is more cinematic than sending your picture into a to a tv station mm-hmm. but also by the way i just remember the time in the book they use the word photoshop yeah. Where they're like, oh. the picture had been photoshopped. Anyway. <laughs> it's 18 syllables somehow. But the pageant is also a lot less future focused than than what Helen does in the book, right? Because mm-hmm. in the book, it's like she's giving herself a career, basically. Yes. That she would not have access to otherwise. So it's interesting to me that although Helen isn't going to get to go to university, she has this forward trajectory in the book that is completely mm-hmm. taken away from her in the film. Absolutely. Yeah, the whole town is presented as it's almost like a locked room and you're constantly mm-hmm. looking for ways out. And for Julie, that's going to university. And for the other three, there is no escape. Like you're mm-hmm. stuck, mired in this town. And that's why I love it so much that in the film version, the Shivers family, ugh, that last name, gorgeous. I love that they own the town store because I think mm-hmm. that's so much more evocative as a way to denote, oh, wow, Helen has basically become stuck in place because she is doing the exact same life as her other gorgeous-looking sister is also stuck living. Such an Ugmo wasn't even in a pageant. (laughs) There's this kind of throwaway moment during the, I think, the first pageant scene, or maybe it's the second pageant scene, where there's a one of the the pageant queens is is stating just a terrible, terrible version of fame. Oh, the off-key rendition? Yes. Yeah, and, and Helen literally looks at the camera and just says, Jesus. And yes, it, to me, it just I love felt it. like that, mo- that breaking, kind of breaking through into the camera moment. Mm-hmm. It gives this kind of, uh, the sense that, like, Helen, you know, she does kind of see past her surroundings and is maybe a bit more complicated than the, than the film gives her credit for. And Williamson seems very 
aware of that, uh, mm-hmm. not wanting to just make her a character that's reduced to her her appearance. Yeah, and that's a moment that doesn't need to be in there. Like, it's a plot point that we revisit the pageant so that we can murder Barry in the balcony. That's why that exists. And yet those kinds of intimate character moments, like the interaction between her and Julie in the car about their friendship, even the moment when Helen walks in and she tries to engage her father and he is basically comatose with a beer Mm -hmm. watching sports, tells us so much as opposed to the book where we get Helen's parents having a very exposition kind of character dump moment like oh well what are we gonna do with these daughters of ours this one's pretty but she blah and this one's ugly and fat blah and (laughs) like i like that the film understands how to convey those kinds of moments without having to hit us over the head with it i like the brutal product placement of the coke that helen is drinking (laughs) but i got the sense that the creators were just like okay, we're going to do this product placement, but we're going to do it in a, a very obvious way to kind of make it part of the, yeah. the campiness that's already there in the narrative. But I love it too, right? It's like Diet Coke, or when you realize <laughs> that your father doesn't care or love you. <laughs> <laughs> the intro, one thing that I found interesting as I was watching the film is I kept kind of making notes on the various character deaths. And up until we get to Elsa, it feels as though it's the male characters that are being punished the most physically. Mm-hmm. for this transgression then we get to elsa and it's just like yeah we're just gonna murder her brutally too yes <laughs> is she involved in this no, no no she's she's just mean she's just mm-hmm. mean it's like max getting murdered it's like wh- why did why did you feel the need to kill max because he, he was there irritating. on the road that night yeah but he doesn't see any of it mm-hmm. you could argue he should have been paying attention he should have asked more questions about the fender bender and so on the real question is like why why are Max and Ray working at the, on this the same dock? I don't know, it just feels I thought Ray was working as a waiter or like a cater waiter or something. And then when we fast forward it's like no, they're working on the same fishing boat. Mhm. I'll tell you the reason why, Jess. It's because we need all of these characters who are absolutely stunningly gorgeous people <laughs> to be in tank tops. We need them all to be wearing tight tank tops. <laughs> god bless the late 90s (laughs) when it came out in the theater i saw it with my friends and at that point i'd probably when is it 98 97 97 okay oh yeah that was like the year that i had come out to some of my friends when i was still in high school i remember going to see that film and a friend of mine was like hey what'd you what'd you think about that boat scene with freddie pins jr when he's in the tank top What'd you think about that? And I'm like, you know what I thought about that scene. <laughs> <laughs> How very dare. <laughs> Complex feelings. He's wearing, he's got so much dippity do in, in his hair. Oh my God. Wild. Yes. Half of this film's budget went to hairstyling. My favorite hair moment is when Sarah Michelle Gellar's hair gets <laughs> so absolutely good. butchered by a so hook good. hand yes. in overnight. And then the next day is absolutely perfect. Mm hmm. I like to think that there's a scene missing in between where she wakes up, she sees herself, she sees the message, she freaks out, smashes the mirror, and then immediately goes to the nearest salon and says, hi, I need a chic (laughs) AF cut because I'm going to be in a pageant later on. Not just in a pageant, I'm going to be in a giant shell. It's waving to people uncomfortably. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine the directorial note where he's just like, okay, Sarah, the thing is, 
you're in a pageant, you're in a Botticelli-style shell, you are the former Croker Queen, you're about to give up your legacy, but you're experiencing existential dread and also real terror that <laughs> mm-hmm. a fisherman with a hook is about to disembowel you. So just try to emote all of that. And you know what? She does. Mm-hmm. And also, we need you to run in this dress. <laughs> Oh my gosh. She has one outfit and it's one of her outfits is like a baby doll tee and a beret or something. Just, oh my gosh. It's, it's the a, worst. That's the immediately after this. her hair is cut and I'm like, that was Helen's decision <laughs> to hide her hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, the hats that the women wear in this film are just <laughs> like, no, folks, we have left behind Blossom. That time period is gone. My favorite thing is that you're being stalked, you're being chased at any moment, you know, you could have to flee for your life, but you are not putting away those platforms for anything. Absolutely not. Fashion before death. (laughs) Like a Chuck Taylor? Would it kill you to throw on a Chuck Taylor? (laughs) Well, except for the scene, like Ryan Phillippe, I think the directorial note was like, we need you to wear as few clothes as possible. I approve of this message. That might always be his directorial note. Yeah, and I feel like Philippi is probably pretty game. He kind of understands what that scene is about. We all understand what the shower mm-hmm. scene is about. Doesn't need to be there. It's kind of a reverse nope. of the of the psycho trope, but I found that really fascinating. Jess, as someone who had not yet come out at that point in my high school career, that scene was very <laughs> important to me. It was like the, the TikTok moment where you're coming to consciousness. A little bit. Yeah, You know, like, oh, should I take up boxing? Would that help me to look like that? <laughs> oh, I don't think I want to look like that. I think I want to have that. Got it. Oh, okay. Well, I remember as a queer viewer, I had more of a crush on Freddie Prince Jr. And I think it was because he had a particular way of playing a teen character where you where you were kind of like, oh, he's a jock, but he's nice. And also a little bit dumb. Yeah. Always a little bit dumb. But kind of like in a in a goofy, engaging way. Like he's the type of straight teen boy that might be friends with a right. queer teen boy and mm-hmm. and probably like wouldn't out them and would keep their secret. That was like the I think the narrative that I had built up. Whereas Ryan Phillippe's character, I was like, oh, that's the type of guy that would have murdered me. Yeah, he absolutely would have beaten the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. But luckily he gets killed in the film, which is the best thing about the film. <laughs> but not even in a satisfying way. Like, he just gets hit by no, a car. Well, he gets hit by a car and then he gets, you know, slashed in a balcony. Oh, yeah, the balcony. Yeah, that was very theatrical. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing is when <laughs> when um, Sarah Michelle Gellar is screaming like, oh, my God, in the balcony, stop him. <laughs> There's a murder happening. It's in the balcony. And everybody's reaction is to rush her and make it so she can't move. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very interesting crowd response. Not like, oh, somebody go upstairs. It's like, everybody stand near that hysterical girl. It seemed to me like he was revisiting the, the scene in Scream where Jamie Kennedy's character has the murderer behind him. And, you know, mm. Courtney Cox is screaming behind you, behind you. But then it's it's so much more pleasurable because we all want Barry to die. Well, this is very much a trope of particularly slasher films where somebody sees something and then they can't convince anybody to believe them that there's been an actual murder because the killer is, you know, upstairs with a mop and bucket making sure that there's no evidence anywhere. But I like this as a little bit of social commentary on the way that women are not believed. 
because mm. Sarah Michelle Gellar tries to tell everyone that there has been a murder. And this police officer, this Barney Fife, Mayberry ass reject, <laughs> will not believe her. <laughs> Because she is a teenage girl and he thinks that she's just hysterical. And so for me, the pleasure is actually watching that dude get murdered in the alleyway oh, about two minutes later. All my ACAB feelings really mm-hmm. in that moment. It's good. It's good. That's yeah. a really interesting point, too, because I, at the start of the film, they're trying to turn Julie, as as played by Jennifer Love Hewitt, as the kind of critical voice. Like, she's she's the one who's like, okay, boys you need to be a little bit less sexist or okay i need to point yes. out point out the inherent flaws but then as the movie progresses it becomes clear that jennifer love hewitt's entire role is to just scream as much as yeah. possible and yeah. also bounce her boobs up and down a little bit helen like almost becomes like she gains more depth even though she's got way less dialogue whereas mm-hmm. i felt and i remember i was reading an interview it was sort of like a secondhand film critic talking about an interview with Williamson where he was just like, yeah, we really wanted to make Jennifer Love Hewitt's character seem really vulnerable. So we just had her screaming her head off the whole time. And I thought, what a oh, wasted gosh. opportunity for this actress. <laughs> like she's at this point, she had proven herself to be a decent dramatic actress in shows like Party of Five. Like she mm-hmm. had a, a resume but I thought that was a real missed opportunity, like especially in those final scenes on the real like horror set piece on the fishing boat, where it's just Jennifer Love Hewitt running into various screaming, holds in the boat, screaming, screaming, <laughs> screaming at Ray, scream, like screaming at Billy, screaming at everyone. Well, it's actually very interesting. And Brenna, I'm interested to hear your take on this. But what's happened with the cultural legacy of this film in particular is exactly what you've just discussed, Just So... People love this movie. Uh, It really has become a kind of modern classic for specifically people who like slasher films. But the way that people talk about this movie is incredibly dismissive of Jennifer Love Hewitt's character, Julie James. And I'm guilty of this myself. She's often discussed as a weaker final girl in the subgenre. And people often talk about Helen should have been the lead, she should have survived, and how that chase scene that she goes through is one of the most iconic moments in modern horror history. So Brenna, I'm interested as somebody who was like really coming into this green, (laughs) how did you feel about that division between Helen and Julie? I guess for me, I just... I was disappointed. I, I want to say straight up that I actually I did enjoy the film and I actually texted Joe and I was like, oh, I actually enjoyed that. that she was, was so surprised. <laughs> I, could, I could see it in the text. Like, I didn't expect to actually like this. Oh my gosh, I'm so surprised. Yeah, no, I was very surprised. But I was disappointed in the way both female characters are treated because yeah, like Helen gets that great chase scene but her larger narrative is so truncated and limited compared to what we have otherwise and Hmm. julie who's this character who is supposed to have a future and she's supposed to be the smart one she's supposed to be going off to university where nobody else you know has access to that world Mm -hmm. and yet yeah all i get to do is hear her scream so you know i was disappointed in that scene on the boat where it's all about freddie prince jr being like coming to the rescue and you know for a dude who has spent literally the entire movie with his mouth open a little bit staring off into space (laughs) he gets elevated to heroic status at the end of the film in a way that i thought was unfair to both the female characters like i just and i don't know if that's just 
you know, what you come to expect from a 90s teen slasher movie. I don't know if that's just part of like the price of admission, but I found it super disappointing. Well, usually the girls are presented as the ones who will not just survive, but they will ultimately thrive. Like they are the ones who are... Eh, they they often have to pick up a phallic object to deal with the killer, but mm. usually they get more to do than what Julie is afforded here. Mm. If there is a boy, he will maybe get injured in the way, like, basically when Ray gets knocked off the boat, usually that'd be like, okay, we'll circle back and pick you up after all of this is done so that we right. can get a happy heterosexual ending, but it's it would typically fall on to Julie to do the heavy lifting of dealing with the killer. And in oh, this well, case, it just doesn't happen. That's annoying. <laughs> can I just, can I, I know we have to wrap it up. Can I make one comment on the hook? Mm-hmm. I don't find the hook scary. I was surprised by how not scary I found the film in general. Now I did make the decision to watch it in the middle of the day for, like, <laughs> that was a very conscious choice that I made. For scaredy cap purposes. For scaredy cap purposes. But like, I found the book once the stalking like kind of escalates. I found the book scary might be too much of a stretch, but I was definitely like page turning and wanting to know what happened next. There's something about the hook that, and I know it's like, it's, there's some old urban legend about a hook, which I was not familiar with. So maybe that is also part of it, but like, (laughs) no, like it's gross and everything. Like when he guts Max with a hook, but it doesn't feel like a thing that could happen in real life. Maybe that's my scary line. Like, the movie I find the scariest in the world, and I've said this to you before, Joe, is that one, I think it's called The Strangers. Oh, yeah. And it's like, there's this last line at the end of that movie, and they're like, why are you doing this to us? And it's like, because you were home. And it's like this idea of just like, it could happen. Mm -hmm. It's like everything in this movie could happen. Whereas the hook to me was just like a bridge too far. Like, if you had been holding a knife, I would have found it scarier than the hook which just seemed too dramatic, like (laughs) too attention-getty for a murderer. It's very much a movie construct, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it made me wonder, too, if, like, after rewatching, I know what you did last summer, I decided, oh, I want to rewatch Scream, too, and kind of see some of the connections between the two films. And it it seemed like rewatching Scream, it's a legitimately scary movie, but the weapon of the killers is not that scary. It's like a very small knife. Yeah, it's just a regular kitchen knife. Yeah, it's a regular knife, and the the mask is not particularly scary. It's very kind of stylized, and it made me wonder if it wasn't something that Williamson was doing as well. Like, it's not the... Mm. The weapon itself is kind of ridiculous, but it's more the mm. ability of the killer to kind of be in all these different places at mm. once. And in Scream, the reveal is that, you know, it's it's multiple killers. But then with in... I know what you did last summer. There's just a sense of this, like, this fisherman is just very intuitive. Able <laughs> to kind of, in order to oh, yeah. create all, all of these different set pieces. The comment as well about um, Ray getting elevated, I thought is really interesting. Because in the book, when Ray does prevent Buddy slash Collie right. from killing Julie, the sense is like, he jumps at him from behind and hits him with a flashlight. And literally says to Julie, I guess I was just like a hero in one of those YA narratives. Like, I just, 
<laughs> it's you just bumbled into it whereas in the in the film it's like freddie prince jr is this hardened fisherman who is able to to kind of participate in this whole set piece and i agree that jennifer love hewitt's character does kind of get diminished throughout the film but she does have that iconic moment which was satirized in films like scary movie where she kind of turns to the camera and screams what are you waiting for oh, yeah. <laughs> invites the killer and that to me is kind of an interesting moment for her like it should have gone forward a bit more in the film but i think jennifer love hewitt does that in a really iconic way iconic for good and bad reasons yeah all right well shall we play a quick round of ya bingo yes please bingo not a good bingo all right so just as our guest why don't you take a first crack at some of this yeah i had a hard time deciding because there are are several squares that apply, and then there are a lot that don't really apply at all. Okay. One that I landed on pretty solidly was hollow friendships. Yeah. In particular in the film, because I feel as though the there's a kind of complicated friendship in the book between Ray and Barry, and it's mm-hmm. really reduced in the film. And I think that was just something that they needed to do in order to kind of... They, they weren't really able to explore that. Mm-hmm. Because the whole the whole story is kind of about testing their friendship. Mm-hmm. And specifically thinking about the film, I chose musicality because I do feel as though the, the soundtrack is pretty iconic. Yes. Oh, so good. A lot of the songs are kind of alluding in a kind of, you know, extra diegetic way, thinking about what is going to happen in the next scene. And there's a kind of a gothic horror mood to the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Clumsy uh, by Our Lady Peace is like just such a yeah. perfect choice. I was like, whoa, okay, that's really good. <laughs> Is it my turn? Is it, it my is. turn? Yes, is you it go my ahead. Turn? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say good friendships for the book. Okay. Um, because I'm interested in how the friendships change and, and morph as a result of this trauma that they've experienced. I would actually echo that also for the film, but strictly for the Julie-Helen friendship. Oh, yeah. Specifically from Helen's perspective towards Julie. I don't know that Julie is as giving a friend as she is. <laughs> No, I think that's fair. Um, stunt casting, obviously. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Obviously who? What do you mean? Well, who are you suggesting is the stunt casting? Literally like, all like of everybody them? from the WB being in a movie together <laughs> in the summer and on their shooting schedules. Okay. This was like, this was like a whole thing. Even I know that. <laughs> Those were my primary two. And I was going to try to make an argument for borrowed time because this all Mm -hmm. has to be resolved before Julie goes back to university. So yes. And of course, in the film, it's also like the July 4th. We know that it's all going to build to a head on the day of the pageant and the parade. Well, Julie also has to reconnect with her unnamed black friend in college. So they can really (laughs) rekindle that important relationship. Yikes. And then she randomly has Brandy as a roommate in the sequel. And you're like, why didn't they just recap? What? what? Okay. <laughs> Yikes. Um, I guess that means that holiday, uh, the holiday square should be ticked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm done. Okay. So uh, I'm a little confused that no one has mentioned the dead body that we are oh, literally yeah. building. <laughs> I thought it was too around. obvious to choose that. <laughs> Every square counts, Jess. We need them all. Okay, um, I am going to say a queer secondary character. You two can feel free to challenge me on this. Jess, you obviously talked about some queer coding in the book. I have always read Missy as a queer character. 
not just because Anne Hesch has sort of straddled the sexual fluidity in her own personal life, but the way that Missy is presented to me is very much, um, she's like a queer figure. I agree. And I also read um, The Killer as queer, because even though I don't know, I don't think it's necessarily obvious, but there's the sense that all of this kind of has to do with a, a friendship that's gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I'm just really overreading it, but the idea of this character being named Billy Blue, and then the boat's name is Billy Blue, it made me think of Billy Bud and Melville. And it was just a, it's a literary reach, but I thought there's mm. a queerness to the killer as well. Interesting. Interesting. And then I did have Magic Supernatural down, if only as a bit of a joke for the way that the killer is able to kind of bamf around and know exactly (laughs) where to be in the film. But also Julie's mom. Oh, right. Actually, yeah. Julie's mom (laughs) tingling Spidey sense in the book. (laughs) Uh, We did discuss a little bit about the ableism around Barry's Mm. recovery in the book. And then the final one that I have is Perfect Date, because I think before everything goes to hell, when they run over the fishermen in the film, that beach date, as everybody (laughs) gets the rocks off and tells urban legends, that seems pretty fun. Everyone wants to have sex on a muddy beach. I mean, come on. For their first time? No, Julie, you do not have sex on the beach for your first time, ma'am. I love the idea that Joe's like, it was a perfect date until that guy got murdered. Yeah, you know, we can separate things. We can compartmentalize. (laughs) Like, there's the pre-accident and the post-accident. And the pre was actually quite lovely. (laughs) And Helen is kind of planning her whole future with Barry, too. So she's really taking control during that date. I wanted to yell at Helen, please read the book this is based on, Helen. This doesn't go well for you. (laughs) I will say, I laugh. It's inappropriate and probably insensitive of me, but... Sarah Michelle Gellar's line delivery of before you go off to rehab is just like so funny to me. Uh, Yes, Breda, that does give us a line. Oh! Wow. Yay! I'm so honored to be part of a line. It's like the first time in a long time. (laughs) uh okay so jess this is your opportunity to uh give us a little bit of a plug how can people get a hold of you if they want to connect or read any of your stuff oh sure um i'm kind of chronically online so if you want to connect with me on twitter i'm just at at jess battis um you can contact me through my institution as well the university of regina i have a book that just came out kind of focuses on queer young adult literature called thinking queerly it's all about wizards and how they get adapted in young adult literature oh nice feel free to check that out uh, i'm very i'm very friendly when approached online and we'll we'll always write back <laughs> fantastic awesome uh joe so uh we're like cramming in the full-length episodes this month mm-hmm. to get in as much horror content as possible scary spooky spoopy content uh we are next week checking out night books which is a netflix film and also a book now i mm-hmm. finished the book joe and i really enjoyed it so i'm excited to check out the film oh fantastic okay i'm doing very well with this scary month joe like, i'm really <laughs> i'm handling it well and okay. i'm just proud of me okay mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and just a reminder, if you're getting ready for the next book club, we are reading The Serpent King by Jeff Zetner, a favorite of mine. I'm very excited to jump into it. So if you want to send your thoughts on that or anything else, you can find us at HKHSPod on the Twitter or on the hashtag HKHSPod. For longer stuff, HKHSPod at gmail.com. Joe, where do they find you to send you uh, gifts of Ryan Felipe? Oh my gosh, please do. Yes, uh, I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. Once in a while, I send you something nice. Mm-hmm. And I'm Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, until next time, thanks again, Jess, for joining us. This was an excellent conversation. And uh, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>